0: Sometimes they go after one person to fund up the pursuit of the big case, and who knows, that still might
1: happen. If MTAL is an unfunded mandate, certainly having a psychiatrist come in and see patients is also going to be an unfunded mandate. Yeah, what we want and what we get
0: are different things.
1: Hey, Rick Piccata here. I'm here with Greg Henry. On the Skype line, he's in Ann Arbor. I'm in Los Angeles. We've got the uh, April 2018 issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. Greg, you uh, in one piece up there?
0: Yeah, I'm in one piece because we're frozen in a block. All humanity (laughs) here is frozen into one block to try and keep warm. And, uh, you know, they've told us that we can put the sled dogs away for the season, but I'm waiting
1: to see. You know, Greg, uh we're having bad we're having spring here. I yeah. had to tell my gardeners to not cut the grass because it was going to make noise. And they were using their blowers to redistribute the leaves. They never grass? pick anything up, they just redistribute them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Grass. What's grass? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Honest I to did
1: this. We had a lot of rain here and our grass is growing like crazy. Well, we've had a lot of cold and there's nobody here who believes in global warming <laughs> this particular month. I promise you that. Hey, listen, let's get started. Uh, we have a note from a listener. Oh, oh, Rick, before we get going, can
0: I say a little something about a... Oh, yeah, go ahead. We yeah, this yeah. Week? I went with uh, one of the ASEP past presidents, Richard Stennis to the funeral of one of the founders of ASEP. In 1968, 50 years ago, uh, eight gentlemen met, some from, few from Virginia and some from Michigan, to form ASEP. Well, John Rupke, one of our founding fathers, uh, died uh, last week, and it was a sad occasion for a lot of us. He was the most positive decent man i ever met he was almost pathologically happy into his mid to late 80s and uh, you couldn't ask for a more civil decent guy to have in an organization and to deal with he was uh, he was definitely loved by all of us and uh, he was one of those guys who had a legendary history he worked on uh, fishing boats, you know, uh, deadliest catch in Alaska. He was a Greek scholar. In fact, his undergraduate degree is pre-seminary and Greek with like a Latin minor. Uh, he, was, he was articulate. He was bright. He was, while he was in college, he was head of the Philosophical Society. Um, I don't think we're going to see his like again. So as tribute to John, I will say goodbye to him in in um, in ancient Latin, which is, it was said in those days, sit tibi terra lewis, which means, may the ground rest lightly on your soul. And, you know, John and I spoke about the, and, and he sat at all my lectures and anytime I used Greek or Latin, he would criticize me and tell me where I was wrong. But we agreed that uh, this line, hos hoi gamphion, trephon hectoris hippodomiae, which is the last line of the Iliad, for those who have not read it recently, means, and they buried Prince Hector, the tamer of horses, one of the saddest lines of all literature. So, John, I give you those two in honor of your interests. Um, We couldn't have had a more interesting founder, than John Rupke.
1: Pax Volbiscum.
0: Yes, Pax Volbiscum.
1: There were eight founders. Uh, how many of them are still alive? None. The original I mean, John eight, was the last one. John was the last one who had signed the
0: uh, papers, uh, I believe. And, you know, guys like uh, Wagenstein is, uh, is gone. All our, those people are gone.
1: Our it's, square Hannes.
0: Our square Hannes. All those guys, and um, they were a bunch of people who believed that we ought to be a profession, that we could form a new profession. And as you remember, Rick, because you and I lived through most of that, there were a lot of people who didn't like it or think we had a purpose. These guys ignored all the criticism, didn't take uh, it personally, kept a good sense of humor, and formed our organization. Um, and I thank them for it.
1: Well, this is the uh, 50th anniversary actually of the founding of ASAP and they're going to have a big to do at the, uh, annual scientific assembly. They're having some special articles written in, uh, their magazines and newspapers. And, uh, it sounds like they're going to go all out.
0: Yeah, this is an all out deal
1: and they've done films and all that
0: sort of thing. It'll be in San Diego in the first week of October And
1: I hope to see everybody there. Hey, listen, now can we get started? The matter at hand. The The matter
0: matter at hand. hand. Okay. If you've got, if you've got, let's get a reader or a listener here and uh, see what they had to say. Go
1: ahead. Well, we have a a listener who actually has a pretty sad story. He has been in practice for 22 years. I'm going to summarize his note here. In the past, he took great pride in his bedside manner. He was told that he had a good bedside manner. He had been an EMT and a practical nurse before uh, medical school, which I think kind of get biases you in terms of having a, a care for the patients. He, the, uh, he saw a 65 year old person come in to an urgent care center that he was working at, it was kind of a deluxe urgent care center where they had CAT scans in the lab. This fellow had a history of chronic cervical stenosis, hypertension, and diabetes. Uh, The patient had a chief complaint of neck pain after having had surgery two weeks earlier. But the surgery wasn't on his neck. The surgery is on on his bladder to remove a bladder stone and do some uh, prostate biopsying. Uh, There was a history of a UTI after the procedure, and he was treated in the hospital. He told me that he had been to a chiropractor who manipulated his neck and since that last visit, it was locked. He denied any fever, chills, urinary symptoms and no neurologic symptoms. He was on Percocet but not taking it since it made him feel sick. The uh, Our doctor friend here filled out the differential diagnosis before seeing the patient based on history and the chart putting down musculoskeletal meningitis abscess the exam showed a very uncomfortable patient not toxic appearing pleasant no fever mild hypertension normal respirations and heart rate neck was very stiff decreased range of motion difficult to move no midline vertebral tenderness to percussion which is the kind of the secret sign of trying to find an epidural abscess when you press over the spinous processes And there was a lot of paracervical spasm. No labs were uh, were ordered. A CT spine was ordered because of the chiropractic manipulation and feeling locked. He gave the person one milligram dilaudid and some Valium PO. The CT was normal. Patient was feeling much better, moving the neck well, although still with pain. He was discharged on um, Vicodin and Valium. Two days later, he woke up with... Weak legs and difficulty standing. You went to a different ER, a better ER, obviously.
0: (laughs) You know, Rick, whatever it says, uh, two ways later had weak legs and trouble standing, the story never goes well, does it?
1: No, no. And this one goes really badly actually. So at the better ER, the uh, lumbar puncture was done, a CT of his neck, which was normal. A white blood count was 15,000. Lower legs were flaccid and no sensation, and his arms were working. He was admitted to neurology uh, uh, by a hospitalist, rapidly progressed to quadriplegia uh, without respiratory compromise over the next 12 hours. Catch this, Greg. Catch this. It took 20 hours for the admitting hospital to MRI his neck. That's and another, the
0: second hospital.
1: The, yeah, the second good, hospital. That's the good hospital.
0: That's, That's after hospital. he already had his neurologic findings. It took twenty hours to get the real study done. Right?
1: It's 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 absolutely absurd. And another twenty four hours for a surgical decompression uh, to show his epidural abscess caused by MRSA, which was, by the way, what what was in his urine during his urine infection. Um, this uh, uh, epidural abscess went from C five to T two. He's now in rehab and now with some function of his uh, C5C6 arms, he needs full care, cannot transfer. Six months after seeing him, the physician re- receives his notice. No other defendants were named, which is kind of uh, interesting, but actually the reason that that, that was, uh, occurred is so they could raise the money to sue all the other people. Well, that, that's the at least the thought at this
0: moment in time. We don't know about that for sure, but I agree. Sometimes they go after one person to fund up the pursuit of the big case, and who knows, that still might happen.
1: He says, I was ru- working for a company that runs several high-acuity urgent care centers. As I had mentioned, the malpractice limits were $1 million, $3 million. Uh, and they, uh, provided, this is a policy owned by the, uh, people who own the clinic. He said, I was not aware that the company holds the right to settle. Uh, and that he wasn't, my chart was weak at best. We used paper charting and was filed away incomplete. Great. Fortunately, I documented normal, uh, motor, uh, neuro, neuromuscular exam, normal gait neck exam. Uh, no fevers several times. We had two supporting uh, reviews stating I had met the standard of care and they are doctor and a neurosurgeon. But despite this, my employer said uh, we, he wanted to settle. Uh, the settlement was $850,000. Uh, the plaintiff wanted $8.2 I think $850,000 is, is a bit of a bargain for a person who's going to 65 and is going to be total care for the rest of their lives. I, I thought that was a great number. Um,
0: yeah, it's one tenth what they asked for, but, uh, very few of us, if they said, Greg, would you take $825,000 to not move again and still be awake for the rest of your life? Yeah. That's just what I want to do. I mean, you know, this is a, this is a bad deal, but I, I think it's fair to point out that our our listener, uh, who who's listened to us for years, did his own analysis of what's wrong with his case, and he gave us a point by point, blow by blow description of where he screwed up. This is this is guts. This is real guts, and we thank you for it. You want me to go through a few of these points, Rick?
1: Yeah, I do because uh, he has heard. Let's talk about spinal epidural abscess ad nauseum. And the and as soon as the light bulb went on that this was the 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 diagnosis, he kicked himself. He kicked himself because it was all there. It was all there. It just yep. got it just got confused by the chiropractic manipulation, there the, connecting the dots between the prior infection. You'll you'll see in his review of what he should have done. Where he would have gotten some very critical information that he did not get.
0: All right, blow by blow description of the game here. He says, I should have reviewed all contracts, know the type of the policy. Do I retain the right to settle? Let me just tell you right now having written policies, I don't think a doctor should be the one who decides on his own case whether he settles. And the reason is this you're not objective. There needs to be a panel of docs who independently look at this. You can't look at your own work objectively. I, uh, whenever I write something, uh, I give it to somebody else uh, to criticize the work because you miss misspellings. You miss all kinds of things because you did it. Uh, I just don't think it's, it's ever going to—we're not going to go to that state again where the doctor gets to decide— whether to settle. Now, in the old days, I did have people who'd say, "Well, you know, I think that we can win this. so I would say, we'll be happy to give you the extent of the policy. If you lose above the policy, you pay for it out of your personal monies. So, you know, let them attach your house. Um, and in all the years I did this, Rick, I never have had one guy who was willing to put play with his own money. But
1: let's let's go on to the next one. Well, if I could, sure. This, this, you've said this many times before. This is not about your honor; it's about your money. Yes. And, and, and the <laughs> fact of the matter is, is that you're not the expert in terms of what these cases are worth and what uh, is likely to occur in front of a jury, because you've never been sued before. What the heck? What the heck do you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, the, and, the the old Greg Henry line was, uh, if you want to protect your honor get a pistol, buy a rapier. If you want to protect your assets, that's why you bought an insurance policy, and that's what it's for. Um, Uh,
1: One last thing before we leave that. Interestingly enough, this case was settled uh, for the $850,000 on the recommendation of the urgent care owner who happened to be an acquaintance of the person who got paralyzed. Do you think anything uh, about that? Is there any kind of a uh, collusional kind of thing here?
0: Uh, yeah, I was going to say he's not that good a friend because he would have settled. If he was that good a friend, they'd have settled it for more money, closer <laughs> to, to policy limits. So so I think that friendships in the dumper <laughs> at this moment in time could have happened.
1: A, that's a good uh, point, Gregory. All right, let's, let's move on here. Number two.
0: Yeah. He said, you attempt to acquire hospital and clinic charts if possible. Now there's no question that this guy had a urinary tract infection, uh, shortly before this happened. Uh, and it was MRSA. And of course that's what was in his neck. Um, getting those records wouldn't have been a bad thing. The other thing is if I knew a guy who had a neurosurgeon, and I've got a neck problem, uh, I don't, I think I might think about calling him up and saying, look, this patient is uh, post urologic surgery. You've handled him for his neck problem. What do you think we ought to do? You know, never carry a coffin by yourself, get help carrying coffins. And I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to do.
1: Although, you know, I think that this case probably would not have necessarily warranted a a call because the guy sounded like he had some kind of mechanical neck pain. He had no fever kind of thing. Uh, But what he missed was in the record, it showed that he had seen the patient had seen his urologist four days prior. Right. And at that time, he was complaining of. Fever, neck pain, and dysuria. Four days prior, and that's the urine that grew out, MSRA, MRSA, nobody ever advised the patient or anybody else that that was the culture results. But in four days, it probably would not have made any difference. And in four days, this thing was probably already cooking, this abscess.
0: Yeah. Uh, By the way, he said, uh, charting, uh, he's not quite sure why he wrote down a differential before he saw the patient. Now, I understand writing a differential after you do a history and physical, because you got to do that to figure out how you're going to approach the problem. But when you put things down like uh, 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 abscess in your differential, uh, they're going to ask you questions like, doctor, would, a, uh, would an MRI have better articulated the abscess than a CT? And Rick, we know the answer to that question. We've been doing this show for a long time. Yes, an MRI would be the study of choice. If you put down, well, it could have meningitis. Well, how did you decide since his neck still hurt that you're not going to tap him? I think that uh, I think he's right. Putting down a differential
1: before you've seen the patient is probably not a good idea. Well, the other thing is when you list a differential, are you obligated to exclude all of the items on that differential? And I think the answer on it kind of is yes. Now you can exclude something just verbally that, um, if you put down appendicitis in the, in the differential, you could put no vomiting, no fever, no right lower quadrant or tenderness, no surgical signs. And that's yep. all, you know, that's, that's, that's okay. Um, but putting stuff down Uh, I always had a problem with uh, this thing about medical decision-making and listing all the things that can cause neck pain. And uh, am I supposed to rule out everything? No, I I, have limited that down to the ones I think are the causes. And then I say some words or there is something implicit in the chart that I have excluded those diagnoses with reasonable confidence, not 100%.
0: Yeah, there's nothing 100% except the autopsy, and I think that, that that's right. By the way, he said, always finish your charts uh, and, and uh, before you have that chart put away. Let me, let me just re- reiterate that. It never looks good to get a chart to, on your desk two months later. If you think you can remember um, every detail of every patient, Two months later, like you did that night, uh, you're, you're either delusional or a liar. You're smoking dope because there's no way in hell you can remember all those facts. I can't remember patients I saw last week. And I think in all fairness, uh, finish the charts where you still have some recollection of the
1: patient. You know, there's the uh, common practice now. Of physicians staying over after the end of their shift to complete their electronic medical records, the invention of the devil, and right. and uh, trying to recall all of these important issues regarding past medical history. Are you going to remember that on uh, a bunch of patients that you saw that you didn't get the chart done? I don't. I don't. I don't that, think so.
0: In all fairness, Rick, <clears throat> I. I stayed over to finish up charts when they were handwritten. I finished over when they were, uh, dictated. I stayed over when mm-hmm. various things, but I tried to get them done that day.
1: Oh yeah. absolutely. When there
0: was something still in my brain, um, you know, my brain is almost gone now. And when I look at this stuff, I think, how would I ever remember any of this stuff? But in any event, I, I think, a lot of the points that were made here were very good, very insightful, and, again, courageous, considering he's willing to challenge and discuss his own practice. Uh, I, uh, I, I applaud
1: you for your bravery, sir. You know, he made the point that when you combine a history of diabetes Any recent infection, and you better it's any recent infection. So here's a bladder infection. It could be a cellulitis. It could be a pimple on your butt. You know, that can seed. And why these things go to the spinal column, I don't know. There's all kinds of theories, but they do. So any kind of infection. So diabetes, any recent infection, recent surgical procedure, and worsening neck pain is like the buzzer goes off. Yes, yes, you gotta think of
0: this. <laughs> you as, you gotta do something about it. You can't you can't trust us diabetics. I mean, all of us all uh are working to fool you about every day. Uh Rick, would you like to give us a little uh, background, some points about sepsis? I mean, sepsis uh has has had this popular run for the last uh, five years. Well, here, Most of it I think
1: is overblown, but talk yeah, about it. Yeah. Exactly. You know, uh Here's the issue. CMS has come out with its uh, definitions of sepsis and what you're supposed to do about it. Uh, Yet, there's another organization called the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. And in 2017, they came out with the third iteration of their definitions of sepsis and septic shock and severe sepsis and whether it existed or not. So there's a big disconnect between the most recent definitions of sepsis and the unchanged CMS guidelines regarding what you're supposed to be doing. And yeah, because, for, those, uh, for those of you who
0: li- who are reading uh, ASEP today, one of the three big throwaways, uh, there's a great article this month, the April issue, by uh, David Talon. A good friend of all of ours. And David has uh, got more degrees than, I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, He's got one in uh, emergency medicine and internal medicine and infectious disease. And he's sort of Mr. Infectious Disease. And basically the title of his article is the campaign for sepsis, almost all of which they got wrong. And I think that that's quite right. I mean, he he goes through and talks about <clears throat> some of the things CMS uh, had exp- and took as gospel as if that was going to actually change the outcome in these patients. And a lot of it wasn't going to change the outcome. And, and uh, what it did was put doctors on the hook. If there was a medical legal case, if the hospital is reviewing this or that, and every hospital has a septic fanatic. Who's adopted this now as his or her uh, raison d'être, and they're going to give you crap at some uh, care review meeting based on some of this stuff. And I think that uh, it, a lot of it's gotten out of hand. But uh, but uh, the, the article, uh, a lot of this stuff has been put down by people. And we can't get it changed. You know, Rick, we can't get the American Heart Association to admit that epinephrine doesn't change the outcome in cardiac arrest.
1: We can't do it. Well, the Uh, cardiac arrest drug box is now empty. It should be. What's in the (laughs) You know, the paramedics are really pissed off because they used to have a full drug box with bicarb and calcium and all kinds of lidocaine and all kinds of stuff. And now there's nothing in it except well, Narcan.
0: Uh, ours carry holy water so that they can give last rites and benedictions when two hits of electricity and a little CPR doesn't wake them up. You know what? It's a, it's a sad day for everybody.
1: The I think the medical legal point here is that CMS has a bunch of steps that, uh, they expect you to follow in this. It's kind of like CMS is, is now coming up with quote unquote guidelines on how you identify and how you initially treat this, uh, this disorder. And, uh, to the extent that you don't follow these guidelines or you don't know what these guidelines are, and there's a bad outcome. I think there's an opportunity to go after the doctor because this is this is this is exploded in the last five, six, seven years. Of this diagnosis, and we never heard the word lactate before in our lives, Greg. Yes, you know it's <laughs> yeah. like lactate. What the heck is lactate? You know? Yeah,
0: I thought that's something we put in with paint thinner to uh, you know make the coats uh, of the walls better. But the uh, bottom line here is that when CMS put something down there, you better believe you're going to have to answer that in deposition if somebody dies. And, and that's, that's just a problem.
1: But the Uh, problem is, is that there's this gap between CMS and the uh, evolution of this from step one to step twos to the step three kind of thing. And I think that, um, there's no way you're going to remember all of these things. They need to be in some kind of ectopic brain. They need to be in clinical decision support within your medical record. That is the only reason to have a medical record is to have clinical decision support. So it helps you narrow variability in practice and not miss these kinds of things. But but I think um, this is clearly a moving target. We said all along, well, you know, it comes down to this, give them a lot of water and antibiotics early and and don't fart around with a lot of other stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's the summary of sepsis management water till it's coming out their ears, pick an antibiotic, (laughs) pick an antibiotic or two. And, uh, then you're probably all right. By the way, you can't wait wait a minute. You don't don't want
1: to you don't want to quote Dr. Henry as saying water till it comes out of your ears. You know, this is a medical legal tape here, doctor.
0: You understand the humor involved, but now it, you're not dealing with somebody with an infection. You're dealing with systemic inflammatory response syndrome.
1: I mean, what the well, hell's
0: that? It means well, they may every have changed kid,
1: that already. That's that, you know, this, this is a
0: Sore throat has, has that as, as a process.
1: Well, you know, that's true. I mean, you come in with a strep throat, you've got a 102 fever, your pulse is now, uh, 105. You, uh, are systemically blah. You, you're septic man. It's kind of like, yeah, but no, you're not. Or what if you had a really nasty case of the flu again, 102 fever, a pulse that kind of goes along with that, uh, increased metabolic uh, rate that you've got induced there. And, uh, now. So the net is being thrown out and is very, very, very wide. Our, so read Dave's paper. That's yeah. a, what what issue is that? Uh, you got that there? Is that the most recent?
0: Yeah, it's the Mar- most is recent issue of of uh, I think it was uh, April, the April uh, issue of ASAP Now, and it's yeah. actually very well done. And and <laughs>
1: actually, I, we we weren't expecting it to be done well, well but you know.
0: Let me say. Uh, and, and having written for such journals, we, uh, we, we've got good, good things and, and not so good things. But uh, David is, is excellent, and I invite you to read this stuff. It's, it's uh, serious, and, and it's something we're seeing a lot of. In an aging population country like us, all old people are going to get some infection before they die. And uh, so, so you will be involved in treating shock. Now, when they well, start to talk about the the true um, septic shock kinds of people, that's what you and I think of as septic. Uh, and and uh, some of that, some of those guidelines are reasonable. Um, you know, if you have a lag, if you have a, a lactate that's gone from four to six in two hours, um, you better be talking to the family about the bad outcome that's about to happen.
1: I think that's fair. I think the key here is don't get caught between the CMS mandates and uh, the most recent stuff. And, And the CMS mandates are still, whatever they're telling you to do, you don't want to not do them and say, and have some lawyers say, had he only followed the CMS mandates here, we would have been in better shape than we are.
0: Right. So, so know them. They'd be up and alive and, uh, working playing for the a living piano, today. Right. Yeah. Playing right. The piano. All right. Uh, anything else you want to say about, uh, uh, shock or sepsis or anything no. else? We got another, we got another person who's just written in and, uh, his name is Jeff Anderson. And he's given us permission to use his name as long as we don't slander him. Uh, here's Jeff's comment: He "Said I just finished listening to the March podcast. I have a different take on CMS ruling. Should we not be advocating what CMS is proposing as a way to mandate federal funding um, to ensure better care for our psychiatric patients? Give, I under
1: go ahead. Give you some background? Yeah." Last month, we were talking with Bob Bitterman about this case where there was a considered to be a huge violation of emtala because uh, it appeared that the CMS was saying psychiatric patients need to be evaluated by psychiatrists and that it was we were not worthy, we were not capable of making that. Uh, distinction. And there were a lot of other elements of that, but that was the core of it. The core of it was, was we, we're not worthy.
0: Yeah. Jeff, Jeff actually, uh, goes on to make some interesting points. Uh, yes, I can see and screen a psychiatric patient the same way I see and screen a cardiac patient. However, I do not do interventional cardiology and I do not do inpatient psychiatry. If, I, if we're forced uh, as providers to do this sort of thing, do we get isn't it then expected that we're going to get sort of the backup support to do these things? Jeff, let me just say this. I, I, I don't know you personally, but you're a nice man. But see, what you've said here is logical and intelligent, which means it's not going to happen. Uh, the problem is this. If the feds came to me and said, we're going to require the psychiatrist to be on call. Now, let's just be honest. How many places really have a psychiatrist who comes in or is ready to come into the emergency to give us support? You know, I saw a psychiatrist once, you know, because he'd cut his finger and I sewed it up. But everything else uh, having to do with psychiatry, they send in somebody from the uh, psych psych uh, outreach service or something like that. Um, I don't think psychiatry as a profession is ready to step in and, and function this way. The other thing is, uh, there's no funds for this. There's no place for a lot of these people to go. I, I don't think we're ready for this.
1: Well, it- is there such a thing as an unfunded mandate? <laughs> I
0: know.
1: <laughs> you know, this, what he's saying is this could be turned into our favor by saying the government says all of these people need to be seen by a psychiatrist. Now, uh, he's finally be saying, well, that, that may be true, but who's going to pay for that? And so we are in a real, real quandary because... Nobody's going to pay for it. Uh, if, if, if i is an unfunded mandate, certainly having a psychiatrist come in and see patients is also going to be an unfunded mandate.
0: Yeah. What we want and what we get are different things. Jeff, I wish the world ran the way you had proposed, but my time as president of the college, we fought a lot of those issues. And by the way, just so everyone's up to date, the same things we want on. 21 years ago, which was the prudent layperson standard, is now being challenged again. And insurance companies are saying, well, if it's just a headache, they don't really have to go to the emergency department. And if they show up, you have to screen them and not charge us. Oh my God. I mean, we fought that for three years. We, we had it. The Congress of the United States voted on this. But the one thing about the government is, even when it's over, it's never over. All bad policy comes back again to bite you in the butt.
1: Hey, Greg, tell us about the, this next case a listener sent in. This oh. was a knee dislocation.
0: Oh, yes. Um, this is someone who was who seen. And he He doesn't say that he saw the patient. He's, he heard of somebody. I know of somebody. I know of somebody. It's not for me, of course. Who was seen in the emergency department. And there was some question as to whether the knee was dislocated. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're not talking about, about kneecaps. Uh, We're not talking about these little patellas that are slipped to the side. And it happens in all 15 year old Mm -hmm. girls playing soccer and they just slipped back in. We're talking about somebody who's got a big, fat, swollen knee, and and they thought that it was uh, dislocated,
1: then relocated.
0: Uh, but said uh, said, well, we'll send you home. You got a well, pulse? That. We'll send you home.
1: Well, I think the point is that they didn't think it was dislocated. They were just thought, well, we got an injured knee here, in and knee. Uh, uh, there was no uh, distal issues at the time. And, uh, they, they sent this person home with the, uh, with those knee immobilizers, which I think are the, they are also the invention of the devil. They never work, uh, kind of thing. They always slip down. You would think, can we come up with a, be-? Greg, I got it. You and I are going to come up with a better knee We'll take over the entire market.
0: Right. That's, that's after <laughs> we come up with a better mouse trap too. I think, uh, in any event, the plaintiff's attorney highlighted that, uh, that there were trivial charting issues all over the place. There's, there is sort of a bottom line here. When someone comes in with a big, fat, bloody knee, all you know is you have bad internal derangement of some kind. If the history and the physical support the possibility, this may have had a dislocation you know, it's probably worthwhile to do the study that rules that in or out, and here's the problem. Just because it's two hours after the event and the leg, the foot isn't blue doesn't mean they don't have an intimal flap in the popliteal artery. Some of these come up after two hours, four hours, six hours, and uh, you don't always get a, an immediate closure of blood flow to the to the foot. So you have to do the real exam, and when that exam uh, is suspicious,
1: do the study of choice. Well, that's just it. He wants to know what should be done. Do we get a CT uh, angiogram runoff in all mm-hmm. of these cases? Um, now, y- y- you have to... I agree. This is not somebody... This knee is like a little volleyball it is it is huge it is swollen it is tense whenever you see that you know you have some serious problems going on in the knee and one of them depending on how this history could have gone would be dislocation relocation so this doctor is asking well what tests do we do to show there is no compromise of the uh, popliteal and distal arteries um, beyond it he says we do a CT uh, angiogram That's on one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, he said, I've had orthopedists who advise getting an ankle brachial index initially and then six hours later. An ankle brachial index basically looks at the systolic blood pressure down at your ankle versus the systolic blood pressure uh, in your arm. And when the patient is lying flat comfortably in bed, uh, that blood pressure difference should be less than 90%. The ankle is going to be a little bit lower, but it should be not more than ninety. It should be not more than ten uh, yep. percent l- lower. Here's the problem with that, Rick. I'm
0: not sure. <clears throat> At least our literature doesn't reflect the emergency medicine literature. Maybe the orthopedic literature does, and I can't say I've reviewed all the orthopedic literature. But something like that, where it crosses over between the two of us, between ortho and emergency. There should be something out there that says that. The second point is check it in six hours. In six hours, your leg could be ready to be cut off from, from a vascular depletion. You can't just stick him in a room and tell the next guy who's coming on. Well, look at him again in six hours. I don't think that makes any sense. I mean, answer the question. There's, there's some people who believe that 50%... Of, the, uh, of knee uh, dislocations relocate by the time they get to the emergency department. So, uh, and if they have dislocated, you're talking about 15% of these people who have an arterial injury. It's not a, it's not a de minimis number. Uh, the other thing is the number of these big, huge, not small volleyball, but Volleyball-sized knees is actually relatively, for us, an unusual event. We have all kinds of people who twist their knee and we can still do a great exam on them. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about
1: big bloody messes. You know, this fella says, okay, I basically ignore the advice of the orthopedist and do the uh, CT uh, angiogram. Uh, on a routine basis, uh, you know, I would be interested in what our listeners do, because this is not a black and white thing. And I look at a lot of literature and there aren't any papers saying, well, we compare this with that, the kind of thing, these are rare injuries. So it's very difficult to do a study where you've got rare injuries, uh, for sure. The other thing is, is that not only are we looking for uh, evidence of an arterial injury, we're looking for uh, evidence of a neurologic injury. And the an injury that is most likely to be occurring is the common fibular nerve, which is, runs right around the tip of the fibula by the knee. I hate, I would not like to be called common. It's, it's not, are you, are you common?
0: In you, Rick, we'd <laughs> call it superior. Yes. Okay. Nothing
1: uh, nothing about my knee is common. Thank you very very much. much. But Anyway, that that nerve involves the lateral, posterior lateral uh, aspect of the leg for sensation, the dorsum of the foot. And from a motor point of view, it can cause a foot drop. Obviously, all of these things can be very subtle and don't have to exist at all uh, in terms of the Indication that this person's had a nerve injury and in dislocation.
0: Uh, yeah, but if you're going to make the decision not to do the runoff study, uh, you better be able to document that all of these things are normal, and and that that foot looks just fine. Um, you know the
1: five P's well, you, and all that sort of thing. Greg, what happens when you are at a clinic that doesn't have CT angiography and you have a person with a quietly swollen the app and the history is really not very helpful to tell you the truth. is whether this is a dislocation, relocation, or dislocation at all. Yeah. So um, I, you don't have that option of getting this test. What do you think?
0: Yeah, traumatic knee, big, uh, bloody, uh, a lot of fluid in that knee. What I would say is that person deserves the transfer to a, stu- a center that can do two things, the study. And if the study is positive, they can do something about it. See, I don't want to send it to a hospital that can do a CT angiogram if they don't also have a vascular surgeon, orthopedic surgeon team that can then take care of it when they're done. I've, tri- I've been involved in those cases And it always looks funny when they ask the emergency doc, well, why did you send them there to get the test? Could they treat it if it was positive? And if they can't treat it when it's positive, why would you send it
1: there, Rick? Well, uh, I can understand that. But I also know um, when we do our courses with uh, PAs and NPs that a lot of them work in very isolated places with bad weather, like Minnesota, you know. Don't live in Minnesota kind Uh, of
0: thing. uh, Excuse me. (laughs) I'm from Michigan, (laughs) uh, and we have the same bad weather. Uh, But you're right. At some point in time, you got to bite the bullet. Just ask yourself this question. If it was your kid who had just come off a snowmobile and had that big knee, what would you want for him at that moment in time?
1: Well, I don't want to take this to the extremes, but there are going to be cases where these people are not transferable. And therefore, in that setting, maybe this idea of doing serial ankle brachial indices would not be such a bad idea. Now, you don't have to wait six hours. You could do it maybe every 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 hour to see if, it's, uh, if there's any compromise so that you can determine, uh, yes, there is progressive signs of a problem. And we got to really try to get this person out of here, or frankly, no, there are not progressive signs. And this pulse in this foot is strong as it was when this guy came in 12 hours ago.
0: Yeah. Just remember in Minnesota, upper Wisconsin, upper Michigan, we have emergency sled dog transfer. (laughs) So we don't necessarily have to have a helicopter. We have emergency sled dogs. So uh, think about
1: it a minute. Hey, listen, Uh, we're moving through this uh, pretty uh, slowly here. We got a lot of good cases.
0: Yeah, I got some th- stuff I want to throw out here, which is actually very important. And I want to talk about two two cases which have recently taken place because I know that a lot of the people who listen to this program uh, are, are directors and have some responsibilities in their departments for risk management. Uh, There's the case, a recent case. uh, It's Wigland versus Yamasaki, uh, the Michigan Court of Appeals, um, which uh, just came down in December 2017. It said, a hospital is not liable for the actions of independent contractor physicians where there is no evidence of ostensible or apparent agency. We need to explain that. If a reasonable person, the, the common man, uh, looked at the situation, would he think and believe that the hospital has put that doctor forward representing them? This de- This depends on who's gonna bear the liability and the costs. Can the hospital be tied into these activities? what the court said was <clears throat> if you run if you're on staff at a hospital and you've got a surgical practice a pediatric practice something like that there's hmm. nothing that indicates that you're a hospital agent if you're part of the 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 rape group radiology anesthesiology um uh, emergency medicine and uh, what's pathology. You, know, pathology uh, you are the apparent or ostensible agent of the hospital. After all, patient comes there. The, you're being put forward as their agent. You don't get to pick the guy who reads your radiographs, the guy who reads your uh, slides in pathology, the one who puts you to sleep for surgery. So uh, so this basically said the hospital is not liable for those people who wouldn't be expected to be hooked up to the hospital, but they still may be liable under a parent or ostensible agency if you look like you're the hospital's agent.
1: What do you think about that, Rick? No, I, I, I agree. Uh, everybody wants to to go after the deep pocket of the hospital in addition to the insurance of the individual physicians and trying to connect these two uh I think all li- lawyers are going to fi- try to find a way to connect the two of them you guys in Michigan <laughs> said uh it, it doesn't work you yeah.
0: Know. yeah yeah it doesn't go by the way uh the um we Rick and I want to do uh, another uh, Mia Copa Mia Maxa Macopa uh we did mention some facts on a case that, uh, took place in one of the upper New England States. And it, uh, it was taken from the Manchester, uh, guardian or something like that. One of those newspapers, uh, the Manchester register, whatever it is. And, uh, we did not have the full facts. Uh, we haven't monitored the case at all. We just made some comments based on their, situations, uh, that they put forward. Um, we in no way intended to make official comments on that case to the extent that somebody was offended. Uh, we both humbly apologize. We're not going to make that mistake again. Are we Rick? Uh,
1: no, but it's really tempting when you have a newspaper newspaper article that you think is written by, um, reasonable people with regard to the facts, at least to, uh, not talk about that because we'll never know what the outcome is in most of these cases. Hey, listen, let's do this case, uh, Bill Sullivan's case. Uh, we we're, we're, we've been barring a few cases, uh, from other people. I don't think that they mind because I think that what we want to bring to these cases is the spin that we, um, after the fact. So can yeah. you go through the facts of this thing really pretty uh, quickly? That's not, yeah, yes. Yes, quickly.
0: Yes, this was a 34-year-old female with Down syndrome, collapsed at home, and was taken to a local hospital uh, in a prominent southern state. A CT was negative, and a diagnosis of focal seizure was made. uh patient was given antileptic medicines and sent home. The family disagreed with this diagnosis and wanted her given TPA for a suspected stroke. Now this is a little bizarre that the family, well, I'm not sure whether the family also had, you know, did a residency in neurology and had found a, a sided lesion, that sort of thing. This is what they wanted. The physician declined indicating she was not a candidate. Now, there may be perfectly good reasons, even if it was a stroke, that she wasn't a candidate. Don't disagree with that. But on the request of the parents, she was transferred to a second
1: facility a better where, hospital.
0: A better hospital, of course, wh- which was ultimate and she was ultimately given TPA for what was diagnosed at this better hospital as a stroke. Due to the delay, and Being given the TPA, and you again, you have to be a believer in all this stuff. It was asserted that the patient suffered severe, irreversible brain damage. Oh my god, is this going to be a is this going to end well, Rick?
1: Go ahead. No, no. Um, we did a study from the uh, doctor's hospital, a uh, doctor's insurance company, yes. the largest physician-owned insurance company, and they looked at 300 and some. Cases closed claims for emergency physicians. Number one was stroke. Yes, the, yes. The MI is missed, moved down to two, and I think spinal epidural abscess was in three or four. So stroke is number one now. Yes, and, yes. And it's and frankly, it's all about not giving TPA. Lost opportunity uh, to uh, give TPA. That kind of stuff. In any case. But there's good
0: news out there, and that is, it's not just going to be uh, giving TPA anymore. It's going to be, did they suck out the the clot in a reasonable time frame, and they keep moving that fence ahead and ahead and ahead. Stay tuned. We're going to see. We're going to see cases on that. But Rick,
1: tell us what happened here. So in this state, there's a cap on pain and suffering of five hundred thousand dollars. What did the lawyers do to get around that? They sued the hospital because the credentialing process was faulty. And here are the particulars. Number one, they said the physician who is, saw that patient was allowed to work in the ED despite not meeting the minimum prior experience requirements set in the hospital bylaws. I think it's probably the medical staff bylaws. I, I'm sure that's what they meant. Yes. Number two, the hospital violated its bylaws by failing to obtain evidence that the physician had performed the required CME. Number three, the hospital failed to investigate two malpractice claims against this doctor. And number four, the hospital failed to follow up on a qualified reference given by another physician, which was sounded like it was a little fishy. So here, Greg, now you can do the next part because basically we're not talking about malpractice anymore. We're talking about uh, the hospital screwing up uh, in its own processes.
0: Right, exactly, and when, when we talk about a malpractice case, we should be talking about a, the science of medicine being tried in some way, shape, or form. This was a procedural set of doctrines, and it was a set of policies the hospital had. Did they comply with, or didn't they comply with, their own rules which they set up? And when you've decided to go against those rules, they don't even need a medical expert. They can get someone who's an expert in hospital administration to come and speak to what you do whenever a possession presents with these things. So really, you're not in this case trying a medical legal case, which in Louisiana is capped at $500,000. Now you're treating a common negligence question against uh, on a procedural basis against a hospital administration. It's a totally different case, and in in this case, you're not protected by the uh, medical
1: malpractice cap. Well, yeah, they I don't looked, think that's a, yeah, that's not right. They looked at all of the wording of all of the um, revisions of the malpractice. Uh, statutes in the state and not, nowhere was the word credentialing listed. So basically this is considered negligent credentialing. And and so I think it's kind of an interesting tact to see if we can get around that cap by looking at what was the credentialing process of this physician.
0: Dr. Sullivan makes the point, by the way, that whenever a family is requesting a treatment that you think isn't indicated try and document the reasons why what you're giving the family for, for why they can or cannot do something. And if necessary, if they want another opinion, another consult for God's sakes, help them get it because, uh, this family's anger, uh, got, got turned into an action, um, against both the doctor and the hospital. And it's, it's, going to be an expensive, it's going to be an incredibly expensive way to go.
1: Uh, Greg, as you know, we uh, referred to Chuck Pilcher's um, column, which is called Medical Malpractice Insights. It's a free uh, column that you can but, get and sign up for. By the way, Rick, if you
0: steal stuff from Chuck Pilcher, are you a Pilcher filter?
1: I mean, we got to think about this for a while. Go ahead. Listen, I hope that Chuck won't be offended, but the reason I'm putting his stuff in here is because I have a different spin on a couple of his cases. Yes, exactly. His his product is called Medical Malpractice Insights. You go onto the internet, you get it, you subscribe to it, and he he sends it to you free. Um, He talked about a subarachnoid hemorrhage case. 54-year-old fellow who went to the emergency department after awakening with a severe neck pain, and several days later, the patient was determined to have a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Okay, okay. The point I wanted to comment on, and we would be uh, interested to know the opinion of uh, the folks out there listening, the doctor wrote in the note, I considered and do not suspect CBA, subarachnoid hemorrhage, intracranial hemorrhage, or mass lesion. Here we go again. Putting down, uh, Did you exclude all of these things? No, I consider them. What is the obligation of the clinician here? This seems so nutty to state that this differential, when none of them have been excluded. Why not just list every cause of neck pain, just like we talked about before? I think that there is some issues here when you do that. I think it is a little... A little dangerous. Uh, it is not clear what you're supposed to do. Am I supposed to rule every one of these out uh, in some way or other? Whether it be just verbally saying they didn't have this or that or the other thing, and therefore I don't think it's this diagnosis. Well, and it's, you have to base it on your history and physical,
0: and so state it. I'm not going down this path. After all, uh, we, we'll a lot of us will see fifty or sixty or seventy headache patients. Before we ever do a study, because quite frankly, it doesn't meet the criteria to get a CT scan or whatever study. Make sure that you put something
1: in the chart that indicates that that is not necessary. No fever, no neck pain, no uh, no uh, no no uh, stiffness. Those kinds of things, so that people can imply from the chart. Oh, though he's actually talking about meningitis. I'm going to do two quickies here, Greg. Can you do yours? Uh, we did a case from the February issue of Chuck's about abdominal compartment syndrome. Yes, yes.
0: Uh, let's let's comment on that one for just a second. Abdominal compartment syndrome, I think, is one of those mysterious diagnoses which is very difficult to come up with sometime. The point worth reinforcing here, is it's a great idea to look at your own images. Now, I know that most of us may not be expert on certain kinds of MRIs and that sort of thing, but there is such a thing as, a hey, that just ain't right. Uh, and in this case, there's a picture of a grossly distended abdomen. It was one of those, oh my God, pictures where you're looking and saying, I'm not sure what they've got, but I don't want it. Uh, somebody
1: else has to look at this patient. And yeah, this, this is yeah. This this there was this picture which is, which truly was um, shocking, shocking. And if you had seen that shocking picture, you might have rethought what you were going to be doing in terms of the disposition and diagnosis of this patient. Yeah, and this is the
0: killer part: the nurse's note better reflected this patient's exam than the doctor's note, you know, grossly distended high pitch, bowel sounds uh, obviously obstructed Uh, you you know, when the doctor's note doesn't match with the nurse's note, you better get it together. I hate a way. A lot of the electronic medical records are structured so that you can't get at the nurse's notes to know what they've actually written down. This is the kiss of death to have one healthcare professional fighting with another. It's awful.
1: This nurse nurse wrote the classic description of a grossly distended uh, abdomen that was about to burst that was a surgical condition and the physician just kind of was not aware of it, got blindsided. The other thing about this is that this is an adult gets discharged with the diagnosis of constipation. That's the, one of the ones when you say that word, electronic electric bolt should go through your head whenever you say the word constipation as the final diagnosis in a, an adult. And there's one last case. I want to do it before we get into the wine of the month. This is another case from Chuck. This is from his March issue, a 26-year-old with all the classic findings of a large pulmonary embolism, no fever. She was short of breath. Uh, rapid heart rate, rapid breathing, right bundle branch block on the EKG reflecting, you know, right ventricular strain kind of thing. And one comment that was made in this is that uh, had a D-dimer been ordered, it would have shown the jury that the diagnosis was considered. Well, that may be true. That may be true. However, the Pioped recommendations say, do not order a D-dimer in somebody who has a high risk of having a PE, like just, this person. Just you get the to, study. Just get and, the study. <laughs> well, this You get you skip the D-dimer. Why? Because it may be falsely negative. And then what are you going to do? So it's falsely negative. You can say, well, I'm going to send you home. No, this patient needs a CT pulmonary angiogram and a D-dimer is not indicated. Now I must admit, Chuck is right. Had you put down I'm going to do a D-dimer test. It makes me think that you're considering PE, but what the heck would you have done with the outcome of this if it was negative? So it probably is a, a, a dichotomy between what was good medicine and what told the jury what the, what you were thinking about, or in this case, not thinking about.
0: Yeah. Well, the Bayesian analysis, this is, it was an older person who just got off the airplane from Bhopal, India, uh, where they were forced to sit in tourist class. They just had their <laughs> broken hip repaired, which was probably secondary
1: to a, uh, metastatic <laughs> I, cancer. I got it. I got it. I, <laughs> yeah. I got yeah. it. this. No, so, this was a, this was a 26 year old girl. Come on now. Uh, I think that we are just about done here my friend uh well can I do one thing before you got the I hope uh, do you wine? Got I, I'm I, gonna I, do I one got thing
0: I, things. Yeah.
1: listen I'm gonna show you this I'm gonna I'm gonna see I, I'm showing Greg this picture uh, through Skype of uh, this this headline this is a this is a great case it just came across the wire it's got nothing to do with emergency medicine but I thought you needed to know about this Jury orders Fresno heart surgeon to pay $68 million to the family of a man left in coma. $68 million. This is a surgeon in uh, up, up by Fresno, who is uh, 57, and he does, oh my God, you would not believe the number of procedures this person has, has been known to do. In any case... He did this heart procedure, chest was open, and told his PA to close the chest because uh, he had a luncheon meeting. This guy leaves the hospital, the person's still on the operating table. The PA is closing the chest. They get into some problem with them bleeding. The guy's in his car and basically does not come back. And the patient becomes so hypotensive and loses so much blood that he has not enough blood to his brain, goes into a coma. And unfortunately, he lives. So there's lots and lots of money uh, going out. Can you envision this <laughs> <A> surgeon <laughs> leaving the building while his patient's st- no, this not in the recovery room, not in the recovery, room. having a PA sew your chest closed after a heart operation? Well, uh, uh, you know, Rick,
0: um, th- when you inflame a jury with a story like that. They can come back with some pretty strange numbers. And unless there's going to be a remittitur by the judge, a setting aside of the verdict, uh, I don't know where, where they think you're going to collect $68 million. Most thoracic surgeons don't have
1: $68 million. Well, this, you know, the punitive damages on this were the majority of the, of the, of the dollars. Yes. They were just really pissed. Yes. Um, yes, uh, this, do- this doctor is uh, unbelievable. He did 749 heart surgeries between and uh, between April, 2010 and March 2012. What's that like two, two or three years. He's done 749 surgeries. This guy was the star of the hospital. I mean, every, he, had, he brought in so much money, uh, but that's not going to be the case because right now he's in Pakistan.
0: Oh my God! So so he's he's not only uncollectible, he's he's not findable. I, I mean, everybody hides out in Pakistan these days. Uh, uh, how much time do we have left, Rick?
1: We have about uh, four minutes, Doctor.
0: Okay, one more point. Uh, I can't believe how we. I've got stuff stacked up here forever, but there is an interesting. Recent finding for all of you who are administrators and guys who run groups, everybody is sitting around these days, uh, not wanting to let certain older physicians go. Can you be sued for age discrimination? In a case, Singleton versus Public Health Trust, and this is the 11th Circuit Court, so this is a federal case because it it was filed under Americans with Disabilities Act, age being a disability, they said, (laughs) no, to be a qualified individual, you have to meet the productivity standards, which would be expected of everybody else. If this guy was seeing the same number of patients, same number of RVUs, all that sort of thing, then it would be discriminatory. But if you do not ring the bell in both productivity and quality reviews, that sort of thing, you can fire them. And, and if it's on that basis, they can't come back after you under an age discrimination point. And if you look what's happening right now in medicine, there's a lot of older doctors who, quite frankly, invested in all the wrong things? They got blown up by the dot-com bubbles and things like that, and they still have to work for a living. So, if you have to let somebody go, make sure you never reference their age. It is all the other things by which we judge all other physicians. But I would, I would keep that that uh, case at hand because uh, it is your your defense.
1: Should you let someone go? Well, I I think it's kind of nutty. I mean, there's all kinds of variabilities in productivity. And now that people are getting paid for performance, these people who produce less get paid less. And so if you were willing to tolerate somebody who doesn't crank it out, uh, because you needed to get it cranked out, uh, this is a little, a little strange. I did mention, I think, um, Claudia gold, really nice, really, really, really sweet, uh, friend who I love very much. Um, and her, fa- uh, father, do you know, Stan gold? Yes, Remember I know him very well. That's her, that's her father. He's now 84. He's finally retired. Finally, you talk about <laughs> yeah, yeah, a yeah. guy who was practicing and in well into, into his older, uh, years. Any case, uh, Claudia told me that at the hospital that she works out in orange County. And I think I might've mentioned this at age 70, you have to take a, some kind of a, some kind of assessment of your capabilities in terms of your uh, thinking process and your cognitive abilities and the like. And yep. she told me that it cost $2,000 and that the doctors had to pay the, pay the fee.
0: Yep, And, and that's better, Rick. Than having it as they do in the airline industry, where they market strictly on your age 65. And say it's, is it 65 now, but it had been 60. Then it went to 62. But the point is, there's going to be some guys at 65 who are like 50 yes. and no, and nobody keeps in better shape than those guys. And nobody has to be examined every year
1: that they fly and the, and on top of it the plane flies itself anyway.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they make less decisions uh, in the flight than you make in the first 10 minutes working. What's it
1: going to be for lunch? Yeah. Is it going to be the the roast beef or the, or this or the fish? Yes. You know? It, that's it. And by the way, they
0: taste the same, so it's okay. Uh but the, but stay tuned on all this because as all these new computer programs come up that can check your reaction time, that sort of thing. That's how we're going to get people um, is, you know, uh, are they drunk or not? Do they have drugs on board? Are they been smoking marijuana? It's going to be on a neuro capability basis, not on an absolute number.
1: Hey, listen, you got to get through the wine of the month, like in a nanosecond here.
0: All right. Wine of the month. We've uh, spent way too much time on all this other crap. Uh, <laughs> let, let, this is what we should be spending our time on. But um, I, there are two great uh, reviewers of wine who I read religiously. I know Parker.
1: And, well, you know, well Parker no, no,
0: no. And... Parker's doesn't actually do it anymore, but the guy he's got doing it is great. Uh, they've tasted two of the California Napa Valley uh, Cabernets, and they're from Schrader Cellars. Now these are the 2015, and they're still being barrel tasted because the, they don't bottle them just yet. But they they've done something very strange. They've actually given one of these, uh, the Bextoffer uh, Schrader Cellars 2015 Cabernet Sauvignon Bextoffer, and they've uh, they've given it a hundred. And the comment is: This may be one of the best wines ever produced in California. This is uh, this. It's rare they say things like that. So uh, stay tuned. If you can get your hands on some of this as it's bottled, probably be worth it. Now it isn't going to be cheap, but uh, it's it's rare that they go that much out on a limb for a California wine.
1: I promise you. Okay, Greg. That is uh, April. I appreciate your. Uh indulging me and uh, being with me. And, uh, are we doing any courses, uh, coming up? I don't, I, I might come down and see you in New Orleans.
0: Well, let me tell you right now that the New Orleans sign-up is the yeah. best we've ever had.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's gonna be a lot of people down there.
0: Yeah. Okay. Guys 200 folks, but we want to see y'all down there. And so for the April edition, uh,
1: this is Greg signing off. And uh Rick, this is uh Rick Bicata signing off as well. So talk to you next month. Bye for now.